Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 339 with Chris Bailey. I think you'll love this chat with Chris because, well, Chris is just a lot of fun. He's, he's a funny, quirky dude, and I just, you know, resonate with his his energy and flow and vibe, and, and I think you will too, because he just brings a lot of passion, enthusiasm, thoroughness, and, and humor to the topic of productivity, and he's uh, fresh off a bundle of research for a new book. So you'll learn, one, ways to hack your procrastination triggers, two, just how much time we waste on checking email and three, the 20-second rule and three ways to apply it to your distractions. So if you'd like to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F339. Now here's Chris's scoop. Chris Bailey is a productivity expert and the international best-selling author of The Productivity Project, which has been published in 11 languages. His next book, Hyperfocus, came out yesterday, if you're listening to this at the day of release. And Chris writes about productivity at alifeofproductivity.com and speaks to organizations around the globe on how they can become more productive without hating the process. Thanks to Chris for taking some time to chat and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Chris. Chris, welcome back to the How Do We Awesome At Your Job podcast. It's been a while. It's been like 250 episodes or something like that. It's nuts. Yes. I was just looking at it like uh, your episode before number 32 is like under a tenth of the current episode number. So how about that? (laughs) Yeah. Do you ever go back and listen to like the first few shows and how do you think you've improved a lot since then? Or do you even want to listen to yourself back then? I have listened a little bit, and uh, but but not a ton. I've definitely noticed the difference. I've, it's fun. I've had a couple guests who have been on multiple times, and, and and they have said similarly, "You're better at this now," which is which is good. Huh? You know, that's what you that's what you're hoping for. Yeah. Well, I don't remember you being bad at it, but it's good. Like I always like looking back on my previous work and and hating it because if you can find things to dislike in in the way that you worked before, I think you're on a positive trajectory like it's when you look at your previous work and you think man where did i go wrong like where where did i lose my mojo what where you know what's different now in my work uh, i think that's when when you run into problems so may you always look back work and think it's crap oh that's that's like an irish blessing oh yeah. thank you a lot <laughs> yes you're welcome pete <laughs> i understand you recently got into knitting What is the story here? I I think you disclosed it on a forum that I asked you to fill out. Uh, (laughs) I didn't know this would be made public. Or maybe it was one of your people. You've got people now. You've grown a lot too. Oh, man. Yeah. (laughs) You know, since episode 30, man, I'm a changed man. Uh No, no. You know, knit. No, I'm I'm the same weird person. Yeah. Knitting is this weird hobby that I think more people would enjoy doing if only they got in the door and tried it out a little bit. So a while back, on a total whim, I signed up for a a local course here in the small town Canada city that I live in, and I expect it to stick. So there's a, you know, there's a piano. I'm looking at it on my left here. It has a bit of dust on it that's accumulated in my office. You know, I have a lot of things this that are kind of fleeting, that evaporate as quickly as they came. But knitting very much is one of my new favorite hobbies. And the benefits of this have been 
well documented. For example, it, it can uh, you know it distracts you from pain. It it, it leads you to remember more. It it even combats things like depression. It lowers your resting heart rate. I've been looking at a lot of knitting studies lately. In case you uh, can't can't hear that, but <laughs> but while you know those benefits, but I actually knit to become more productive uh, because it lets me just kind of rest my attention a bit. And you know we can get to this a bit later. I talk about this in in the book, but uh, it's when we rest our attention that we become the most creative. You know, it's when we focus on something with intensity that we become productive, but it's in that resting state, uh, especially when we get into that deliberately, that we're able to connect ideas together and plan and, and rest and recharge. So it's great as a work break. I knit on planes. I knit on the couch while I'm working. I'm not knitting right now because I have enough attention to spare. But but uh, yeah, I knit. I was knitting at the coffee shop this morning, uh, drinking morning tea, and ignoring the way people were looking at what I was. Well, doing. you know, it's so funny you say coffee shop because I remember one time I was on a date. Oh, this is some years ago when I was single. You, you know, a date is going bad when they break out the knitting needles <laughs> and start knitting. <laughs> well, she wasn't knitting, but there was a dude uh, <laughs> like very close to us knitting, and and it was funny yeah. because. He was maybe only, I don't know, four feet away or less. And and he just like, he had his headphones on, he was sipping the coffee and he was knitting with, with, he was like into it. You know, it was clear that like he was jamming, he was knitting and this was the the place he was going to be doing it. And it was kind of funny because in a way I was like, how odd, but in other ways, like that's, that's pretty cool that you have so much, you know, confidence and self-assuredness oh, yeah. that you can peacefully knit in a public place and, and be cool to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it takes another level of either confidence or not really caring. <laughs> One of the two, or maybe they're the same thing. I don't know. Yeah. And it's funny. I just recently learned about knitting and in, in terms of the, the research behind it from a recent guest, uh, Dr. Srini Pillay. And and you mentioned that's one of the the top things you can do to enter a, a place of letting your attention rest uh, and yet be oh. somewhat in, engaged. And so, uh, like right up there with uh, tending to a plant is yeah. knitting. And now I know. So that was what I, what I thought. Like, oh, Chris Bailey, Mister Productivity Experimenter, knitting. It's probably down with the research. And sure enough, sure oh, enough, yeah. you are. And it's it's in doing something that's a habit too. This this is one of the fun parts of writing a book about attention is when we do something simple that's habitual, like when we take a shower, when we swim laps, when we just have our morning coffee with just having the coffee and and not listening to something or doing something else, this is when we've been shown to have the uh, the greatest number of creative insights because we have something habitual that anchors our attention to what we're doing, that kind of guides us along, knit, pearl, knit, pearl, pearl, stitch, knit, stitch. But and it's fun. And so it anchors our attention, but it doesn't consume our full attention at the same time. So we're able to let our mind wander around to things like ideas and, and plans for the future. You know, our mind has been shown to want, it has this prospective bias that's built to it, where when we just let our mind be, if you let your mind be in the shower tomorrow, tomorrow morning, or maybe you're listening to this in the shower, in, in, in which case, hello, if you let it be, you wander to think about the future 48% of the time. 
So about half of the time, you're thinking about the future when you're letting your mind rest. And so people think, man, I'm not focusing on anything. I'm so unproductive right now. But you are productive because you can choose what you do after you let your mind wander. You can set intentions. And this lets you shut off autopilot mode to work more deliberately and actually consider your goals before you act instead of just acting on this autopilot mode. So one of those counterintuitive insights where sometimes the best thing we can do to manage our attention is just to not focus on anything at all and and let our attention be. Mm -hmm. All right. I dig it. I dig it. Thank you. Yeah, you dig it. I, I am. I am, in fact, digging it. So, you're digging. Okay, that's good to hear that you're digging it. And, <laughs> it was so that that stat there, forty two percent, forty eight percent, forty eight percent, and our mind wanders to the. I'm gonna try to get these numbers right. I might be off by two percent. I'm like transposing the numbers in my mind, but the future is forty eight percent. It's half. Uh, we also wander to uh, consider the circumstance the present 28% of the time and the past only 12% of the time. So we think we're, uh, you know, we only reminisce on the negative. And that, that's, that's true. When we're going through a personal challenge, that number rises above 12%. But on average, we think about the past percent of the time. And this is why we come up with so many beautiful light bulb eureka insights in this mode. When we let our attention scatter, those numbers don't add up to 100%. And there's a, you know, the, the rest is when we're thinking about ideas that we've collected. That's when we connect all three to come up with beautiful uh, creative insights that make us more productive overall because it lets us work in a more strategic direction. There's these kind of two modes that we have over the course of the day. You know, there's the focused mode, but there's the unfocused mode. And the, the two modes are even anti-correlated with one another in our mind. And so they really complement one another in these ways, where when we're focusing, we're doing something productive, but when we're letting our attention rest, we can choose what to focus on in the first place. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. It's fascinating, yeah. Well, so then you mentioned your book a couple of times, Hyperfocus, sort of what's the Low main message <laughs> of Hyperfocus all about? Yeah. So, you know, the, I like the realm of productivity, you know, that, but not productivity in the cold corporate sense, but productivity in the sense of just accomplishing more of what's meaningful and what's important every day. And there's a lot of books on time management out there. I, I think there's more than enough. That market has been <laughs> long saturated, but I, I don't think there are enough books about attention management. Then maybe more specifically, the science behind how we should manage our attention. And, and so I noticed this in myself after I wrote the last book that I, we were chatting about way back when mm -hmm. on episode 30-some, uh, The Productivity Project, I, I noticed that once I had finished that book, you know, I had fewer lines in my work right after shipping that project. I was waiting for feedback, and I stayed busy. But my work kind of expanded to fit how much time I had available for it. It was kind of uh, Parkinson's Law in action. And I realized, like, I was tending to a lot of distractions, even though I was giving a lot of people advice that they should tame the distractions in their work. Uh, I noticed I was tending to social media more often. I, I noticed that I couldn't focus as well as, as I could have before that book. So I thought, if I have this problem as somebody who calls himself a quote-unquote productivity expert, you know, that's kind of, it's a tangent, but I don't really think anyone's an expert. I think we just, you know, we're, we're constantly discovering more questions about things. But if I have this problem, then maybe other people do too. 
And maybe the advice that's out there that we should just tame distractions and become less busy uh, and more focused, maybe that sounds good on the surface, but it doesn't actually work in practice. So that, that's really what kicked off this project. Intriguing. And so then when it comes to what does work in practice, I mean, I guess there's, there's so many different ways we can slice and dice and and present it, but let's, let's hear it. Uh, What are some of your, your top practices? And there are so many of them, but, but I think where it's maybe a good place to start is in how we focus to begin with, because our, our focus has natural rhythms to it. The, the research shows it. It's actually quite simple on the surface. It, you know, I'll, I'll say the rhythm and, and you'll think, yeah, that's obvious. But w- how we focus is, you know, we focus on something. Our attention gets distracted either by uh, something external to us or something internal to us. So we, we find ourselves in a day that's unintended and, and not one we purposefully enter into when we're knitting or taking a shower. Uh, and then once our attention gets distracted, something internal or external comes along, we bring it back. Uh, and so I, I think it's possible to map on top of this natural structure a way by which we can focus better. And so I think there are four steps that one should follow in order to focus deeper. You know, first, we should choose what to focus on. And this is something we don't do often enough, is set intentions for what we want to accomplish. And I think there are moments of the day when we have a deliberate focus, when we choose something to focus on, then we focus on that thing. And then there are the moments that we're on autopilot mode. So there's no uh, intention behind our actions. We're uh, our, our email inbox becomes our to-do list. We use our phone bouncing around between the same five or six different apps for three minutes before getting out of bed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are no gaps in our calendar. You know, notifications run our life. We kind of go through the motions of the day. And so I think our productivity and the, the quality of our attention is partly proportional to what percent of the day we act with intentionality behind what we're doing. And so I, I think this is an essential first step of focus is at in any moment, we're either focusing on something with deliberate focus, deliberate attention, or we're just on autopilot mode. And because there are an infinite number of things that we can focus on in any given moment, that makes doing this more essential than it ever has been, because we have things that vie for our attention. And I, one thing that that is missed in a lot of the research on attention and the the advice a lot of people give is that it's not our fault that we can't focus on what's important. It's just the way that our mind is wired. And our attention is fascinating uh, in this regard. Uh, You know, uh, we're wired to pay attention to anything that has one of three characteristics. We're we're wired to pay attention to anything that is pleasurable, uh, anything that is threatening, and anything we find novel. And so there's even a novelty bias that is embedded within the prefrontal cortex in our brain, the logical part of our brain, uh, where we release dopamine for every new novel thing we focus on. And so this is why it's so easy to lay down in bed for half an hour, bouncing around between the same loop of apps, because nothing in our life is more pleasurable or threatening or novel than, uh, than our phone. And so we pay attention to that instead of the day, instead of things that are more meaningful and productive. And so, you know, I I think the first step, choose what we focus, tame distractions after that, uh, focus on that thing, and then bring our attention back to that thing. But I don't want, yeah, 
I don't want to go on for too long about these four things because then it turns into a monologue and not a podcast. Well, thank you. And and it's, uh, (laughs) that's really intriguing. Fired up and, you know, and I got, I got to like check myself every once in a while. Well, and I'm curious when it comes to things which are pleasurable, threatening and novel, it seems like there could be some nifty approaches that might enable you to trick yourself into yeah. finding the the task that you, quote, should be doing in the nearby moment to be one that is more pleasurable, threatening, and novel. Do you have any tips on this? Oh, yeah. We, we can reward ourselves for, for, for focusing on, on certain things. And th- this is, I think, why taming distractions, why we need to get so ahead of that impulse. Because in the moment, what, what we see as a distraction is just an object of attention that is sexier than what we truly want to be doing. And so if you're listening to this podcast, for example, and you, you have your phone with you, and you saw that somebody tagged you in a picture on Facebook, you might pause the podcast and maybe check out the picture and the comments that, that people left about you or focus on that instead of the podcast. And, you know, the podcast might present you with more meaning, potentially maybe more productivity later on, but it, it's not the most pleasurable, threatening or novel thing. And so I think that's where to start with this stuff is to eliminate anything that could be more pleasurable, threatening or novel than what we truly want to be doing. And this is the key, because our attention will always gravitate to something that has any one of these three characteristics. We, you know, we, we look at the threats in our environment, and in reality, there, there are no saber-toothed tigers encroaching on us building a fire. Uh, but the closest threats are, are maybe we're with our significant other, uh, and we're having a nice meal, but CNN happens to be playing in the background, and so our attention gravitates toward the red threatening letters on the screen. The reason the uh, CNN logo is red. And so we have to eliminate these uh, these things ahead of time. But like you said, it's possible to kind of trick ourselves and into uh, into not putting off the things that are important as well. Uh, a little side note on that. My mind is like a, a Mendeley database. Like it's just full of a lot of studies that I can like type a little search query into. And and one of those studies was conducted by Mitchell from uh, Carleton University in Ottawa. Good Canadian, like mm-hmm. uh, hey. like yours, true. Hey, hey, bud. Yeah, he's a he's a really good Canadian chap. And he he found that there are certain attributes that a task or project can have that make us more likely to procrastinate on it. Uh, those are whether something is boring, whether it's frustrating whether it's difficult, whether it's ambiguous, whether it's unstructured, whether it's lacking in personal meaning, or whether it's lacking in intrinsic rules. And in our most important work, uh, it usually has several of these, and that's why we hopefully get paid more than minimum wage to do it. And the most productive things on your list, the most consequential things, they're probably not pleasurable or threatening or novel or as pleasurable or threatening or novel as as you know facebook or email notifications and so you know we can kind of hack those procrastination triggers uh to make things more more threatening we can make it more threatening by working with somebody to set a deadline maybe our boss uh we can make it more pleasurable by rewarding ourselves for following through on something uh we can make it more novel by maybe setting an artificial deadline so instead of saying i'm going to work on this report for the rest of the afternoon we could say i'm going to set a timer 
for 35 minutes because that's how long I think I could focus on this thing for. And I'm not going to allow myself to work on it past that point. And so you work on it for 35 minutes, you hyper-focus on that task, and it's kind of a shortcut to make it more threatening and novel and, and pleasurable at the same time. So yeah, I, I love that line of thinking that there are things we can do in order to tame these things ahead of time. Yes. And I think about the novel perspective in terms of you could do it in a different location. It's like a Dr. Yeah. Seuss book. It's like you could do it uh, with a <laughs> mouse. You could do it in a house. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, so so that is, that's handy there. And, and so I want to talk a little bit about the, the natural rhythm in terms of, of, of you yeah. focus and then you stop focusing. And so you've actually spelled out some, some time frames, uh, amounts of time associated with, with focus and then, and then breaking. So you know, how do those times line up? Well, the rhythm that we work in today is very choppy. It's very chopped up. One of the most alarming statistics, I don't really find statistics that powerful because you know you need to map several of them together uh, to really create a picture of how we work because you know you can never really rely too much on one study. So you have to kind of take them as, as a painting as a whole. And each, each one of them is a, is a bit of a brush stroke that creates that, that final, final vision of the way things are. So, so the one staff I think that shines brighter uh, above all the others is one that looked at how long we focus on just one thing for in our work before we switch to doing something else. And, and the thing I love about this line of research, this was an into study. And so they didn't bring like a mouse into a lab and found that the mouse could only focus on drinking water for five seconds. They looked at people in an actual workplace and they had logs on their computers. They set up cameras to, to look at how people uh, focused throughout the day. And, you know, they did well at first, but then they kind of settled into their natural rhythms. And what the researchers found, what Gloria Mark and I think Mary Sherwinsky found, uh, was that on average, when we're doing work in front of a computer, we only focus on one thing for 40 seconds before we switch to doing something else. And this kind of shocked me in a way that I find difficult to explain, because once you uh, observe this pattern in the way that you work, it's difficult to go back to working the same way again. And, you know, you look at the costs of constantly switching. Um, there's a difference between multitasking and rapid task switching, I, I found in, in looking at the research. Multitasking is doing a few things concurrently, which we can do with habits and things like that. Um, but when we switch rapidly between things, when we go from uh, checking email to working on a report to looking at Instagram to Facebook to a conversation, uh, our tasks have been shown to take about 50% longer compared to when we do one thing from start through completion. And so the reason for this is there is a certain uh, attentional residue that uh, remains in our mind that that are fragments from the previous task that we were just focusing on. So it's impossible to go from, for example, having this conversation to checking your email, for an example, um, because there are certain fragments of this conversation that remain as, a, as an aftertaste in your mind. And, and so because mm. of this, the longer we work on one thing for, the more productive we become because we don't have that residue that we're trying to clear as we switch to something else. And so because of this, we feel like we're multitasking, but really we're just 
remembering a little bit of the previous tasks that we were doing as we try to focus on a new one. And, and so this is the rhythm by which we operate so, for so much of the day. We feel busy, and, and I found this in myself. You, you know, if it sound like I'm, I'm kind of chastising people from, for working this way, I found this in myself, which was the sad part to admit. You know, especially as somebody who considers himself or is often called a productivity expert. But, but I noticed this in myself that I felt busy, but that I wasn't accomplishing as much as when I just focused on something for an extended period of time and tamed distractions before getting into that. And when we get off track completely, this is when uh, our productivity really falters. When, we're, when we get distracted or interrupted completely, whether this is an external distraction or an internal distraction, uh, it takes about 25 minutes to get back on track and resume working on the original task. And we work on uh, two and a half other tasks on average before we resume that first task. And, you know, this is, we fare a bit better when we're interrupted externally versus internally, like our mind wanders or we seek something that's pleasurable or novel. Uh, but this is the rhythm by which we work when we don't manage our, our attention deliberately. We, we're productive enough to keep up with our deadlines, but we don't uh, work up to our potential and we don't feel as rested as we could if we uh, deliberately scattered our attention to. Well, so a couple things that uh, that forty seconds. It's it's almost hard for me to believe that uh, yeah. that is that is true. So could you maybe paint a picture of of what that looks like there? Yeah, it's actually thirty five seconds <laughs> in a lot of cases when we have IM conversations open. <laughs> okay, it's when, when we have apps like uh, like forty seconds is kind of a the nicer finding from the study, and, and I actually found it hard to believe. And this study was done by uh, a team of researchers at Microsoft, of all places. It was done by Gloria Mark, Mary Sherwinsky. And so I, I didn't really believe this myself. So I flew out to Microsoft to ask them about it. And Microsoft, it turns out, has thousands of people who conduct research for research's sake. Because uh, I guess Bill Gates believed in, in doing that, I guess, which is nice. It gives us nice insights like this. But they, this was the, the rhythm that people worked in when they were doing work on a computer. And it measured kind of the uh, context switching. So we switch between Windows on our computer a lot, but we switch between different projects more often. So this was the switching between projects in that digital context mainly. But yeah, we, we fare even worse when we, uh, when we have things like I am open in the background. It's, uh, it, it, it's a fascinating rhythm. And it's something that is worth observing in yourself. And you know, we, we fare a bit better when we're in certain tasks above others. So, for example, having a conversation with somebody in that context, you know, keep in mind this is a mainly digital context. So if we're having a conversation with somebody, for example, Pete, you and I were grabbing a coffee. I didn't bring my knitting needles because the conversation is pretty good. <laughs> but maybe I'll keep them in my bag in case there's kind of a lull in the, and we can't find things to talk about. But, you know, let's, let's say um, one of us leaves our phone on the table, we flip it down uh, so as to be respectful to the other person. One of my, another one of my favorite studies that I encountered in, in writing Hyperfocus was it looked at coffee shop patrons who brought their phone with them to the coffee shop and flipped it face down on the table. And what they found was that on average, these people checked that phone every three to five minutes. People thought they were investing in the relationship, but still 
there was that uh, constant switching and that attentional residue from that digital world that prevents us from uh, becoming close with, with the person. They found that the phone on the table it interfered with their closeness, connection, even relationship quality. It was fascinating. So in short, the 42nd thing, you know, you've seen it within yourself, you saw it at Microsoft, and you, you absolutely buy that it's, it's for real. I do. Yeah. In a digital context, with that caveat. Um, yeah. When, when we're having a conversation with Fair, a bit better, but it, when we're working in front of a computer, especially when our phone is nearby, and especially when we have IM windows open and things like that, we switch contexts more often than, than we think we do. Wow. Uh, that's wild. Okay. So that's kind of the, the pace there. And then what would be an optimal pace? You know, if that's sort of the, the standard of, of what uh, is, is occurring, what would be ideal? Yeah, that, it's, it's a fair question, but the answer is it depends on the type of work that we do. Uh, and this was something that, you know, I went into writing this book thinking, okay, everybody should just focus all day. The, the longer we can focus for in one sitting, uh, the deeper we're able to work, the more productive we become and, and the more we end up accomplishing. But there are two types of work that we do over the course of the day. There's the focus work that we do. And so, for example, a novelist for what would spend most of their day hunkering down, writing a book. And so maybe if they could tame all distractions, leave their phone in another room, have no internet, write it on a typewriter, they could be optimally productive when they cut off the outside world. And, and on the other side of that, that focus spectrum, there's the collaborative, and in some cases, the hyper-collaborative work that we do. And so an example of something hyper-collaborative, uh, we, we've all seen the picture of, of uh, Barack Obama Clinton, the Secretary of Defense, and all those people uh, during the Osama bin Laden raid. If everybody in that picture had <laughs> noise-canceling headphones on, and they were hyper-focusing on, on that thing, and not talking to anybody, and cut off from external distractions, they might not have gone uh, as well as they did after that picture was taken. And so we need to think, you know, with the problems that are on our plate, where we are on that spectrum. Because if we're doing something that's collaborative or even hyper-collaborative, we sometimes need distractions. And often distractions and interruptions are relevant that we're currently working on. But on average, we have about 9 to 11 uh, projects that we have on the go at any one time. So the odds that an interruption or a distraction, like an email notification, relate to what we're currently doing are, are in fact pretty low. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that's where we have to start with, um, where we have to think, okay, what's the focus work that I have to do today? And I, I love having blocks of time on my calendar where I, where I hyper-focus on these tasks, be, where I'm not available. Uh, but then you have the collaborative things where sometimes it's good to be interrupted because that's it, it, collaboration is a process of continuous interruption. We need information from other people. They need information from us. And so by interrupting you, we can get that information. Uh, and so it's, it's fragmented by default in a good way because even though we might not become more productive individually, we become more productive as a system, as, as a collective group with our team or with whomever we're working on a project with. And so I think that's where we start. And depending on the breakdown of the work we do, we can go from that point to work backward to how much time we should be focusing, hyper-focusing, and, uh, and not. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, this kind of reminds me of the uh, the makers versus managers view yeah. in some of the the lean startupy stuff, uh, suggesting that you know makers, you know people who created stuff and and, and produced bodies of work with their their intellect, whether they're coding or designing or writing or editing a podcast or or, or something, need more uninterrupted spaces. Versus the managers need less of that because they're, they're more about just kind of quickly giving and receiving information that, that people need to, to have so that everyone's coordinated and, and, and doing the right stuff. Yeah, yeah, they, totally. Yeah, and you know, one meeting in the schedule of uh, a maker, if somebody is a coder and somebody schedules a meeting with her at like three in the afternoon, that's going to disrupt that coder's entire afternoon and maybe even their entire day because that, that's kind of a, a bit uh, of tension in the back of their mind that they have to dedicate toward that one thing. And so yeah, I think that, that was one thing that surprised me. And, and I think this speaks to the benefit of, of experimenting with the research. A lot of the things that sound good on the surface, like, oh, we should tame every single distraction we face in our work, don't really prove to be true when you actually try them on for size. Uh, and so I, I, you know, it speaks to the value of road testing these ideas but it also speaks to the value of adapting what works for us and leaving the rest because it's personal. And because of that, the advice is personal. We should take what works for us, I think. Okay. Well, so one thing I wanted to dig into in terms of speaking about what works for us is you have a suggestion that we should uh, take a break before we need it, before you're feeling exhausted, fatigued, bogged down. Yes. And so uh, I'm curious to hear if you have any sort of guidelines in terms of minutes of, of focus that that is in terms of a range. And, and for me, what, what I find is that this has been a pattern lately in the mornings I've noticed. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm cruising. I'm enjoying it. It's fun. I'm getting ideas. I'm making connections. I'm flowing and rocking and rolling. And I just sort of go, go, go. And then afterwards I go, oh man, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and, and so yeah. it's sort of like, I don't, I don't know when, when should I say, I know you're having fun and enjoying this and, and being productive, um, but nonetheless, yeah. it'd be optimal to stop right now. Yeah. Stop right now. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah. You know, when, when you're in the zone, here's the interesting thing about breaks is the more often to regulate our behavior, the greater number of breaks we'll need. And so sometimes, you know, people turn to productivity advice for the wrong reason. You know, they hate their job, for example, and find the motivation to do it. And and so they think, okay, maybe some hacks will help. Uh, If you have to regulate your behavior, and we all have stuff to do, but if your whole day is stuff you don't want to do, then you're going to need breaks (laughs) because you have to regulate your behavior and more specifically your attention to focus on stuff, to pay attention to stuff, to pay attention to conversations, to get stuff done because it isn't pleasurable or, or novel enough. And, and so I, I would start by that point, at, at that point, you know, the more you need to regulate your behavior, the greater number of breaks that you'll need. And, and so I, I would kind of develop a mindfulness, not on a specific number per se. I, you know, I was looking for the optimal number and there, there's been some uh, interesting studies on on breaks. I, I think one study looked at the uh, the optimal uh, number of breaks that we'd need to take to be optimally productive over the course of the day. And I think they found something like uh, for every fifty seven minutes we work, 
we need to take a 13 or a 20 minute break or something along those lines. Uh, you know, the number that essentially equals out to one and a half hour break for eight hours of work over the course of the day. But it really depends. And, and this is the tough part about giving advice. And I think a reason why, you know, this is what I learned in, in the process of writing this book, a reason why we should blanket, uh, we question all the blanket productivity advice that people give. And so question the advice that I'm giving, question the advice that, that all the experts on this show are giving, question the advice, especially when it's blanket productivity advice, that everybody should do things a certain way. Mm-hmm. Because if you love your work more, you're going to need fewer breaks. If your job and you have to, or, or you hate a pro, let's make things a bit less dark. Maybe you hate a project that you're in the middle of and you're slogging through it and you find you definitely need to tame distractions to eliminate anything that's potentially more attractive in the moment than what you really want to be doing. Then you're going to need more breaks and you should reward yourself because you're going to need to recharge your attention more often. But I think as a general rule, uh, we need a one-hour break in the middle of the day to divide things up and as well as a couple 15-minute breaks here and there where don't focus on social media, but we give our brain an actual rest. Uh, th- this is a people make when they take a break is when we take a break, we need to rest our attention. We need to let our mind wander because that's how it recharges. Because by doing so, we don't need to regulate our focus. When we just switch to tending to our smartphone instead of leaving that behind and, and going for a quick walk through nature or to the coffee shop, it's just focusing on something else and then moving our mind to focus on something else and then moving our mind to focus on something else back to work. And we feel like, uh, like a, I can't really take this on. I'm just going to look at email for a bit. Um, and to do, you know, find something that's probably less that doesn't consume your full attention. So you get the benefits of doing something habitual that lets your mind wander and lets you ideate and plan for the future, but still rest up a little bit. Too. Mm-hmm. I dig it. Thank you. I, I also liked the, the study you referenced that, that revealed that email can consume much more of our attention than it does actual hard minutes of time. Unpack this one for us. Yeah, like meetings are kind of the opposite of this idea. eh? Like a meeting might take up an hour of, I just dropped an A, inadvertently Canadian. That would be, (laughs) if I were uh, to publish a memoir, (laughs) inadvertently Canadian would be the title, I think. But yeah, the, the research on meetings, you know, we don't bring a lot of attention to them, but they soak up an incredible amount of time. But email is kind of the opposite. On average, I have the stats in front of me. This isn't in my mind, so I have to tell you that I'm cheating. So on average, we spend about 35 minutes on email each day. But on average, we also check it 11 times every single hour, which adds up to 88 times over the course of the day. And so this speaks to that that 40-second study, email being just one of the things that we switch away from our work to, where we, we focus on something. And the way we work from afar looks kind of odd. <laughs> if, if an alien were to come down and, and look, look at you working, or even just a researcher from Microsoft sets up a camera in your office and in a non-creepy way, hopefully, uh, hopefully they tell you, but, but, uh, you know, they would find that, you know, you go from doing something totally productive, you're in an Excel sheet, you're typing up your team's budget, uh, to checking your email another time, or you're listening at a conference call and you're contributing 
but then there's a little lull in it where you don't need to. And so you pick up your phone and, and stop focusing on that uh, and check your email on your phone. And so, you know, it kind of speaks to that idea. And email is one of those things that we need to tame ahead of time. Uh, one, one study that, that is fascinating, I think, and speaks to this uh, the segmented attention that we have is 70% of emails are open within the first six seconds that they're received. Oh my gosh, really? I noticed this in my newsletter stats. So I send out a newsletter whenever I publish something and you can see how quickly people open it and, and it, they, it really is open pretty quickly. But we, we can get ahead of this a little bit uh, by hyper-focusing on email, not keeping it open all the time, but maybe setting, say you deal with an incredible volume of email, uh, perhaps setting a 20-minute timer at the start of each hour and during that time, you blow through as many emails as you possibly can and then focus on something for the other 40 minutes that isn't uh, as time sensitive so you can get out of that reactive mode. At most, if an email is urgent, somebody has to wait uh, 40 minutes for a response, which they have to do when you're in a meeting anyway. Um, and limiting points of contact is another strategy that I, I think uh, really helps us become a, a better custodian of our attention where... We don't need a, a, all our devices to light up, uh, you know, when, when we receive an email from Amazon telling us that our order is shipping. Uh, you know, some, uh, and I realized this when I, when I was beginning to write the book uh, and, you know, pouring over this research, you know, focusing on it uh, up until the point I had around 25,000 words of research notes, pouring through those, I realized an email, like, my office would be as bright as a wall as a Walmart because my watch would light up, my iPad would light up, or would light up, all because I got a single email. So you know, leading the email app off of your phone is uh, is one of those powerful things that you can do because uh, it just frees up so much attention uh, for focusing on better things. Oh yes, I am pretty hardcore about limiting notifications. Um, oh good, and <laughs> so I'm right with you there now. Since you've looked at all the research, uh, I, I love that I can just throw it Most at you. Most of the research, there's probably a every few bit of research still... under the sun you've you've looked at, which we appreciate your efforts <laughs> on our behalf. So you're welcome. I think I was looking at a um, from the Sanebox blog. I use Sanebox, and I love them for the record. The, and the McKinsey Global Institute found the average employee spends about two and a half hours a day. Uh, reading and responding to email. So now that that's way more than 35 minutes. And so yes. are, are, are you, do we know what the mismatch is there? Is it, is it due to huh. much of the time is, is just looking at it like, Oh, Hey, there it is. <laughs> As opposed <laughs> to like, Oh, I, I will thoughtfully reply to this now. Yeah. The, you know, there'd be different methodologies uh, to, to studying this, of course, different samples. The, the ones that I looked at, looked at not time logs, but actual logs of, you know, which said that person, this person was in Outlook for 31 seconds, and then they they switched to Excel for five minutes, three seconds, and it, so it's kind of pretty granular with, with the studies that I looked at. Mm -hmm. But I would trust the McKinsey name, and and uh, you know they they definitely have that name. So sometimes a lot of these studies look at time logs. That, that people create for themselves. And do you know the, the sample? Maybe there were executives that, that had those more uh, collective type roles um, where 
you know, managers do spend more time in meetings and emails because they, they play more of that traffic cop role. It's back to the mayor and the manager idea where, you know, managers, another distraction, their day is, is a bit more distracted and they don't benefit from these uh, long extended periods of deep focus because they don't get them that often. Okay. Understood. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I don't know cool. if that helps. But, well, no, yeah. I, I dig it. And I think I buy it in, in terms of if I just look at my actual sent messages, you know, on, on a given yeah. day, it's like, okay, well, well, maybe I sent 20 messages and uh, each of them are maybe one to six sentences on average. It's like, well, I guess I didn't have to think super hard to to craft each of those <laughs> that, that may very yeah. well be perhaps 35 minutes. And yet yeah, uh, it, it can it can pop up. I, I try to minimize it because I know it's it it has that novelty. It's like, oh, what's that? Mm-hmm. No, yeah. let's take a look. What's that in the corner of the screen? Mm-hmm. Chris Bailey emailed me. That's, That's a, re- a new. Uh, it's a new dishcloth he made. Well, it's very pleasurable. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, and yeah. sometimes threatening. Frankly, <laughs> well, dishcloths can be very. Yeah, this. Yeah, man, I have more dishcloths than I know what to do with right now. Um, it, w- one of the things I'm thinking of doing. <laughs> Uh, just as kind of a side note, is I do like some a lot of corporate talks, and I'm thinking of like this would be a cool thing to work into the talk. Talk about knitting and like give out a dishcloth that I made for uh, maybe I'm speaking to McKinsey or something. Give out a dishcloth that I made to some audience. Could be fun. Mm, that's nice. Yeah, and they'll 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 clamor for it. Who wants a dishcloth? Yeah. Ah! I want. Dish <laughs> oh just go nuts. <laughs> Yeah, like rock star. This is how I imagine it in my mind, at least. <laughs> and, and I also want to hear you have a, a twenty second rule, which I love because I love the David Allen two minute rule. You've got oh, yeah. you've got a twenty second rule. What's the the rule here? Yeah, so twenty seconds is a weird number in this way, and and the research shows that it's about enough of a temporal distance that something ceases. To become distracting, or, or or we can use it to bring uh, positive distractions toward us. So it, you know, I, I look around my my office right now. My meditation cushion is is right. Uh, there's nice plants around. There's a piano to my left, which honestly I haven't played in a while. So maybe maybe it doesn't work. But I, I found it for other things. But but the idea is. It, 20 seconds away, we're a lot less likely to uh, get into it. So if if we have the, a bag of chips that we keep in the basement, in the corner, in, in an area that we never go to, that's a lot less uh, appealing to us than if we keep it in the cupboard in the kitchen and it takes 20 seconds to go down there and fetch them. And so this is about enough of a temporal distance that something ceases to become a distress. So we can keep positive distractions around us. So I like to keep uh, a lot of books. Or I have many books around uh, my desk here because they're a positive distraction. They're, they're not email. They're not my phone. And my phone is, it's in another room right now. I just looked around to check um, to make sure I wasn't lying. The, my phone's in another room right now. And so I need to leave my office and go to another room in the house I'm from home today in order to fetch it. And so we can keep distractions that far away. Another one of my favorite ways of doing this is I've relegated, relegated, delegated, whatever the hell the word is. I've made one device my distractions device. I've done this with my iPad. And so my iPad's sole purpose is my distractions machine. And so I check my email where I 
don't have it on my phone and it's very difficult for me to get to on the computer because my password's so long. That's another use of the 20-second rule where you keep your password so complicated and long that it takes you 20 seconds to remember and type them in or find them in a certain place. And so I, I do that. I use that as a distractions machine and I keep it in another room in the house. And it's a costly investment. I think our attention is so valuable and that we easily earn that time back and how much more focused we are. That's cool. And you can even just put your email program if, if you have like, you know, Outlook or Apple Mail underneath uh, or within uh, a folder or two. And so it's yeah. like, hey, that's not just one click. You're going to have to double click something and double click something else and then open that thing up. So you're, it may take you more than 20 seconds to actually or, or pull delete that off. Email, or delete email. Or one of my favorite things to do, um, because I, I get tempted by this. Now, even after looking at all the research, I get tempted by things like Twitter throughout the day uh, when I don't have a distractions blocker like Freedom or Cold Turkey or Self-Control Enabled. Um, what I do is I purposefully uh, make, like I, I uh, go to the site and I say, change my password. And then I literally like, uh, you know, I go enter, uh, open a text document and like bang on my keyboard. And uh, until I have like a series of letters and numbers, I paste that into each of the fields I log out. Then I need to go through the whole process to reset my password and, you know, do the double step verification. Did you make, are you the one who did this? Open up your email. Here's the reset link. Verify that it's you. And that takes more than 20 seconds, a minute or two. But if I really need to get into Twitter, I'll get into Twitter, but there'll be a cost to doing so. That's at least 20 seconds long. I love it. Well, Chris, tell me anything else you really want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and talk about some of your favorite things. I want to give some people something tactical. I, I think we covered most of this stuff. Like, uh, honestly, you know, I mentioned distractions blockers for, for a little bit. I want, I always like giving people some tactical things to walk away with, but I think download a distractions blocker while you're in this mindset of taming distractions, because th this feeling will be fleeting. <laughs> you know, and it's easy to go back into working the, the same way that, that you did before. And so if you're on the go, open up your calendar app and schedule a, a little 15-minute block of time, download an app. Freedom is a great example of one. Uh, Cold Turkey is a great example of one. Self-control is a great example of one. Rescue Time is a great example of one. Some of these work across devices, uh, Freedom being one of them. And, and download it and schedule a few blocks of time in your calendar that nobody will book you, book you in that you can use to focus on just one thing at a time and tame distractions enter into this mode and have have some fun with it you know whenever i enter into a distractions free mode i like to um, i like to make a cup of coffee or go to a cafe if if i'm uh, or maybe I'm on an airplane and, and I order something off the little menu and some, have some fun, like have a coffee, maybe listen to some music that, that you like, that you find conducive to focus and focus on what's important. And you, you might feel some resistance at the start. If you do, ask yourself, you know, could I focus for an hour? Maybe you say no. Could it, what, 45 minutes? Uh, 30 uh, 25. Yeah, I could focus for 25 minutes and you focus for 25 minutes and you take a break and you go from there. Um, and so be kind to yourself because, you know, especially at first, I remember when I was first starting with the ideas in hyper focus, I couldn't focus for a few minutes. 
but you know it's a muscle that you build over time and and now i can do it for a few hours just by using the the these uh ideas so um you know maybe a couple tactical things to end with download a distractions blocker uh, schedule blocks of time in which you can focus and uh and defend the time religiously because your attention's worth it mm, i love it thank you well now can you share with us a favorite quote oh i love seth have you had seth godin on the show oh not yet no, yeah, you should. Um, my favorite quote is from him. Uh, he said, instead of wondering when your next vacation is, maybe you should set up a life you don't need to escape from. I dig it. Thank you. Yeah. And how about a favorite book? Book? Hmm. Probably, it's a, it's a bit hippy-dippy. And so if you get the book, keep that in mind and, you know, again, question everything, but mindfulness in plain English. uh, And I forget the uh, monk who wrote it, but it's essentially a a book on how to practice mindfulness and meditation. And I found it to be so accessible. And this is what got me into meditation and mindfulness in the first place. And maybe it will for you too. And how about a favorite habit? Habit. I think the distractions free mode is, is quickly becoming one of my favorites. Meditation is one of my favorites. Ordering copious amounts of pizza and mm. drinking wine and and, uh, and watching Netflix uh, is also a good... It's not a habit, but it's a nice ritual that, you know, kind of... It's nice. I want to do that immediately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what? You paste your picture for this, the end of the workday. Yeah. yeah. If you're listening to this, forget about the podcast. Forget about what we were talking about. Schedule a block of time in your calendar tonight in which you can binge watch Netflix and wine and Indian food or pizza, your, your style is. Lovely. Well, do you, do you have a final uh, additional call to action <laughs> for folks? Uh, That's my call to action. Man. No, honestly, your attention, the one thing that I learned from looking at hundreds of, like some people say they look at hundreds of studies. I read like hundreds of studies front to back, and I'm very convinced after doing so that people who say they've looked at all the research haven't, because it's difficult to read a study from front to back. But so the final challenge I, I will give to you is to use this research to your advantage, because if there's one thing that, that I uncovered looking at it all, it's that. The state of our attention determines the state of our life. If our attention is overwhelmed in the moment, we're going to be overwhelmed. If if we're if our attention is pulled in a, a thousand directions in the or putting it in a thousand different places in the moment, we're going to feel pulled in a thousand different directions, and we're going to feel overwhelmed in return. But uh, on the flip side, if you deliberately manage this ingredient uh, that you have, that it makes you more creative. It makes you more productive and you can bring more meaning things to your attention to actually focus on them and savor them and appreciate them. And I think, you know, these moment to moment things and experiences and events are what accumulate to, at the end of the day, create a life. And and so the more productive and meaningful and, and creative things that we focus on, the more productive and creative and meaningful our life becomes. And I'd say use this to your advantage. Pay attention to the research, but maybe more important than that, pay attention to what you have to do on a daily basis in order to to, to make your life better because of it. Because it's worth doing, I found. And, and uh, that, that's one thing I'd like to uh, impart on. Mm, lovely. Thank you. Well, Chris, this has been a pleasure yet again. Please keep up the great work and congrats on, on all you've done with the book. Hyperfocus and everything else. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciated Chris's take on the 20-second rule, and I, I found that rather helpful myself. In my home office, I had one of those sort of portable air conditioners that had wheels, and it wasn't doing a great job of keeping things cold in the higher temperature. And it was also kind of in the way of my treadmill. So I kind of had to move it each time, like off of the treadmill so that I could get onto the treadmill. And that process took more than 20 seconds. But sure enough, when I replaced that air conditioner with a better unit that's in the wall and out of the way, and now the treadmill is more accessible, lo and behold, I am hopping on there for a quick walk or run way more frequently than I used to. The 20-second rule in action is for real. So I hope you dug that and other tidbits from Chris. Again, if you want to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F339. If you haven't already, I encourage you to push the subscribe button. Our very next guest, you will hear that away. And his name is Rick Nelson. Rick is talking about what it's like to be chief, as in chief operating or chief financial officer, and, and how that's really more of a choice as opposed to a title and that mindset and how you can rock and roll with a little bit more influence and authority in your daily world. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.